Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem. On this second season of the podcast, we are hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous, moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, we speak with Mark Joseph, the CEO of Movitas Advisors and advisor to Dragstar Partners. During Joe Biden's campaign and transition, he served as the co-chair of the Subcommittee on Infrastructure and Stimulus. Marcus had a fascinating career in transportation that started with him taking over the family taxi business in Baltimore. He grew it 50-fold and sold it to the international energy, water, and waste management conglomerate Veolia. He grew the business there 16 times over again. And today he advises a number of companies, funds, and governments on transportation and transportation services. Here's our conversation with Mark. Mark, thank you very much for being on Accelerated. Appreciate your time. Had a busy schedule. I want to start at the beginning. Uh, you've led transportation companies for over 30 years. How did you get started? Well, Vitaly, I was sort of drafted into the business. Uh, I had the good fortune to come into a family business which was uh, headed for bankruptcy, and I was able to turn, turn around the business. I say I had the good fortune because there was no downside in terms of uh, uh, someone who was very young and uh, interested in experimentation and trying to fix a business. Now, you spent 13 years uh, running uh, what started out as a local taxi company in Baltimore and turned into a formidable transportation company. Uh, you sold it to uh, Veolia. I hope I pronounced that right, um, where you quickly scaled the business um, 16 times, I did the math, and uh, later became the CEO. Tell us about this journey and what made the company so successful. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, a very interesting road that uh, we took. Uh, first, uh, as I say, we turned around this failing uh, taxi business in Baltimore and started to diversify and expand the business uh, into the largest private operator of passenger ground transportation services in the Baltimore, Washington market. And then we grew it from about a million in revenue to 50 million and sold it uh, just before 9-11 in 2001. Our first full year of revenue was 2002 with 50 million in revenue. Uh, we became an unlikely platform for Veolia, the world's largest environmental company, to enter the U.S. in the transportation business. And we grew it from 2002 to 2008, from 50 million to 1 billion, uh, and from 2008 to 2012 to a billion and a half, uh, with 20,000 employees, 200 locations, and uh, it was a you know a fantastic journey, and so uh, I did that. We can talk about how that growth uh, was accomplished, but seventy percent of the growth was organic, and thirty percent inorganic or uh, M and A. So uh, it was a combination of the two, but uh, it was a really uh, a great experience in doing that. Sounds like a fantastic ride, no pun intended. Um, so, so, what were some of the interesting lessons that you learned in that process from scaling that business? Well, first, I, I learned that it's uh, much harder to grow a business from one million to 50 than it is from 50 to a billion and a half. Uh, the transition from running a family business and being a, an entrepreneur to being a professional manager in a global enterprise uh, was, uh, was uh, highly um, workable and enjoyable. And I found that actually, uh, I think I became a better manager and leader 
working uh, in this very large international company, uh, rather than having all of the family's sort of chips on the table uh, in a private uh, uh, business. Uh, and as far as um, the culture that we tried to instill, one thing I uh, really, uh, really emphasized is that uh, even though we grew to an organization in North America with uh, over 20,000 family members, uh, that's what I call it, or teammates, uh, we tried to maintain that family culture that we had uh, going back to the early years. And uh, I think we did a good job of that. Uh, and we maintained a very close relationship with our clients. Uh, and really, uh, thanks to having a uh, the benefit of being a, in a global enterprise, uh, we were able to bring best practices from around the world, from 20 countries, and uh, bring those ideas uh, to our clients um, that I think really helped us take the lead in the industry. It's interesting that you talk about uh, the team members as, as family because uh, that's that's really kind of what, for example, made HP famous in the HP way where all, all the entire company was treated as a family. And uh, in more recent years, uh, tech startups um, uh, are criticized often for not for not really treating uh, employees as family members anymore, but really team members that are interchangeable on the field of battle. So it's it's uh, it it goes it says a lot. I think that uh, you built that that company with that focus. Now you went on to serve as a CEO of Transdev North America. Uh, tell us about that company and the important role it plays in the transportation sector. In the early days, Veolia uh, believed that. Uh that the problems of cities were around water, waste management, energy, and transportation. And that's what mayors uh, really had to deal with uh, in large part, uh, along with crime and education. Uh, but uh, over time, the analysts who really followed Veolia have felt that the transportation business wasn't pure play environmental. And so Veolia decided to gradually exit from the transport business and they merged their uh, transportation business with Transdev. And initially it was a 50-50 merger, which was a int interesting integration of these two businesses, both headquartered in Paris. And then eventually uh, Veolia reduced their holdings to 30% and eventually uh, zero. So. Uh, I went from uh, Veolia to Transdev uh, through the merger. They had, um, I would say, similar culture, although Veolia had a much larger business given uh, this, uh, the water and the waste management energy business. But as far as the transport business, many of the same customers, there wasn't any overlap um, in the U.S., there was some in Canada, in Montreal, where we integrated uh, the businesses. Uh, but uh, it gave us a stronger position uh, by having both of these companies and a more broad experience. They had um, a lot of experience in the uh, streetcar or tram business. Um, and then uh, they had the uh, a presence, uh, interesting presence in Australia, including the iconic Sydney ferries. Um, and so we we uh, we did well in the merger, and I think generally it was a, uh, a very positive experience. Now, these days, you advise a number of funds focused on transportation and other sectors. 
what are some of the key areas uh, that you see in transportation that are prime for disruption? Well, you know, right now, I think there are, in some ways, this is sort of the perfect storm uh, for disruption. Um, we've seen different cycles of innovation. Some appear to be very, very quick and, and overnight disruption, but if you think about it, some of this has been in play for many years, including uh, electric vehicles that uh, now are uh, past the tipping point with the announcement by so many uh, OEMs that they will discontinue the ICE or internal combustion engine vehicles. In terms of micro-mobility, I think that the pandemic accelerated uh, the move towards uh, greater uh, emphasis on micro-mobility scooters, uh, e-bikes, regular bikes, uh, pedal bikes. Uh, this, uh, in some cities, in London and uh, and elsewhere in Europe, Paris, uh, in Spain, uh, a number of cities in uh, Germany and elsewhere, and even here in the U.S., uh, we are becoming increasingly bike-friendly. But during the uh, pandemic, uh, we started to see uh, city uh, cities devote more streets to bike lanes, uh, and this helps to uh, expand the market for these type of services. So I expect micro-mobility to continue and to grow at a faster rate. I think it would be a combination of, uh, of shared uh, services, shared vehicles, uh, you know, floating or fixed uh, in terms of the types of scooters and, um, and bikes and so forth. Um, at the same time, I think more individual ownership. You know, during the pandemic, you couldn't even buy a bike, it seemed. Uh, they're very scarce. But I think there will be more individual ownership of, of scooters, kick, uh, kick scooters, ride-on scooters, and, uh, and bikes. At the same time, we've been watching what's happening in the AV world. Uh, I think there's been a more recent realization that uh, it takes longer to uh, to develop and deploy a vehicle AVs uh, than was expected previously. But uh, we're also going to start to see geofenced routes uh, and uh, more uh, limited services that will take advantage of this great technology and that will result in in better safety uh, and um, and I think some very strong use cases. Um, in other uh, areas of disruption, I think what we're seeing is a change in, uh, in how people are consuming goods, uh, how our shopping experiences, and this is something I'm particularly interested as it relates to mobility, because I think shopping centers are going to change and be repurposed. Certainly gas stations are going to change and be repurposed. And, you know, we know office buildings and other asset classes in real estate are going to change and be repurposed, some sooner rather than later. Uh, but I think we could talk about, uh, you know, where there are opportunities to help facilitate that change. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. 
This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot net slash pitching for more information. See you there. Now, the companies you've built have um, and led have provided over a billion trips. No doubt you have uh, some really deep insights on transportation services as a whole. What are some of the counterintuitive opportunities you see across electrification and autonomy? Well, first, my sort of approach is to find that white space uh, in between where OEMs uh, and technology companies are trying to figure out how to um, enter the mobility world with great experience in manufacturing or developing technology, but very limited experience as an operator. And one of the things that um, seems obvious is that when you start to run uh, operating services uh, around mobility, that you should think about safety, passer passenger engagement, maintenance, um, staging, uh, where those vehicles should go, uh, where they should be repositioned, um, and how you're going to support the operations. And I would say it's almost an afterthought. I I can say that some of these companies, including some of the leaders in uh, in AV technology, uh, are driven by some brilliant engineers uh, who really are consumed with uh, how the vehicle can learn, how the vehicle can operate independently, uh, how to manage the technology, but uh, almost don't have a clue about customer service and uh, and operations. They just really don't have an idea about that. And in some cases, they're trying to tackle the hardest problems first, which are robo-taxis, versus, let's say, running autonomous buses along a geofence fixed route. If you think about running an autonomous bus on a geofence fixed route where you're running the same route every day, uh, you can map it easier, you can understand the uh, the objects uh, on the route, and you can, uh, I think, uh, deploy and, and adapt much faster than trying to go anywhere in a city. Um, so that, uh, that should, I think, be fairly uh, basic, but now others are catching on and starting to think about that. The role of teleoperation, uh, you know, do you have the engagement of humans to, to uh, help navigate uh, vehicles that, uh, f- you know, find themselves, that the default in an autonomous vehicle when there's a problem uh, is to stop, and then you need somebody to help that vehicle recover and think about it. That issue around teleoperations then spawn an entire interesting uh, number of applications around industrial uses, so mining, uh, ports, uh, airports, uh, all types of uh, operations for uh, faster deployment and use cases where there's immediate uh, ROI around teleoperation. Uh, That, to me, is interesting. Low-cost autonomy for delivering things like groceries, it's uh, this is through both a, a, a combination of onboard systems and uh, teleoperation as well. You can build and deploy devices uh, for as little as a few thousand dollars and make a, a very significant impact uh, in neighborhoods. 
uh, with a clean, uh, clean, efficient technology. Um, and then we will see larger uh, examples of delivery. You know, the uh, e-commerce is not going to slow down. We saw, again, a pandemic acceleration of uh, e-commerce. And so lots of uh, form factors that are being developed and tech around different types of delivery. And I'm very excited about uh, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the businesses I'm working with uh, who are in that space. Uh, another interesting business that I am an investor and in advising is uh, robotic tire changing. And I think that uh, we will see these kind of uh, activities where, you know, this is uh, uh, you know, really incredible technology to be uh, able to take a uh, tire off a vehicle, replace the tire, uh, balance it, mount it, and put it uh, back on a vehicle and do that all uh, robotic. And so I can see then when we think about the use of gas stations or shopping centers or other locations and how we can uh, charge, service, and uh, load, and uh, manage distribution, logistics, and service on some of these facilities, that's a great example of repurposing. You've already followed, Vitaly, cloud kitchens, the, the uh, peak in food delivery, and now uh, getting rid of the front of the house uh, the, where people are sitting in restaurants and managing just a, a cloud kitchen uh, from any particular location. And you can start to think about uh, proximity, putting the, uh, the, the point of uh, production closer to the point of uh, ultimate delivery. That's fantastic. I mean, uh, nobody really thinks about that. You know, we have autonomous vehicles and there's a big race for that, but then being to autonomously be able to service them and uh, disposables like tires being changed, that's, uh, that's pretty fascinating. Now, I can't think of anybody better to tell me when we're finally going to have those million robo-taxis on the road. Well, you know, first, uh, it's going to, you know, this is, this is a, I'm, I have the, uh, the benefit of having a, a very good friend, Larry Burns, who wrote the, the terrific book, Autonomy. And uh, I was with Larry last week. He was head of R&D at GM for many years, and he's uh, one who has worked with many of these uh, companies. And uh, I, I, you know, I think when we talk about this, uh, this kind of wide-scale deployment, I think we will see a significant uh, amount of uh, robo-taxis in one form or another in the next uh, two to three years. We'll start to see uh, an uh, increase in, in deployments. We might see them with more limited use cases, but widely deployed in, uh, as I say, in sort of geofenced areas. Uh, I think we will see a, a very significant amount of deployment uh, by the next five years. But uh, you know, it also will depend a lot on regulation. Uh, certainly, we believe that um, that having autonomous electric uh, vehicles will be safer and cleaner, uh, and will offer a lot of opportunities for a variety of folks to access safer, cleaner, and much cheaper. Uh, the the uh, cost per mile uh, can drop from. A dollar fifty for what would be sort of a cost per mile for a uh, individually owned automobile and, and driven 
and over $2 a mile for a commercial vehicle uh, to as little as uh, 30 cents a mile or 20 cents a mile. So you're you're talking about uh, a, a you know enormous reduction in cost of operations for vehicles that can de be deployed many more hours uh, at a much lower operating cost. And because these vehicles are safer, they can start to be built much lighter uh, because they will avoid accidents. So I think that that's what we're going to see, um, and we're going to see that sooner than a lot of people might think, but uh, it will be managed in different ways and start to be introduced in different ways. And in some countries, it may be faster where, where there are less uh, regulatory hurdles, although I believe uh, here there's strong interest and certainly very significant investment by so many of the big players, Ford, GM, Waymo, uh, and others. Now, um, Ford, I, I wanted to dive in on, on the regulations in a second uh, because you had a very important role with what's uh, happening in the U.S. Uh, right now and very soon. But before that, um, you know, basically in this sector, you have uh, two types of companies going after kind of what we call the future mobility. You have the big established OEMs that have to really turn their big cruise ships into this arena. Um, and then you have upstarts, but both have blind spots. You know, the, the upstarts uh, oftentimes don't know what they don't know. And the big OEMs uh, are really uh, sluggish to, uh, to make big moves and spend money. Um, talk a little bit about, um, you know, how they don't speak the same language and, and what you've seen on both sides, some of the blind spots that they have. Yeah, this is a great question, and frankly, uh, an area that I learned the hard way. Uh, my dad was a lawyer, and he used to say, a lawyer who defends himself has a fool for a client. And um, I think that often for a big company, a big operating company like Transdev or Veolia, uh, to try to develop all your own technology, you often have sort of a fool for a client, too. Uh, and so we invested vast amounts of money trying to build tech internally, which we believe to be core to our uh, operations or services. And uh, we learned the hard way that, first of all, when we're building tech for ourselves, what happens is two things. One. Uh, we are uh, we are driving the development of tech uh, by generally operating people in the organization, myself included, who are trying to hit our numbers and run the business. And so we tell the tech team, we want you to build technology that will help me do what I'm doing today better, faster, cheaper. But when you have a startup, the startup is unencumbered by the business model of today in a big company like Veolia or Transdev. And the startup says, well, maybe what you're doing isn't the best model, and maybe we should be doing it entirely different. And then it will be better, faster, cheaper, not your model, your existing model. So the first thing that big companies experiences the innovator's dilemma that Clayton Christensen uh, wrote so well about, and that's whether they can change their business model, whether they can uh, adapt to the disruption, or whether they're married to a business model and trying to build tech around that. The other thing is that uh, having served on, a, on the board of a public company in, in technology space, I spoke to analysts and used to say that what made us a great company 
was the fact that we had great customers. And when you're building tech inside of a big company for yourself, you're limited in terms of those customers because it's only the internal customer. You're not trying to make it uh, in the marketplace uh, with other customers who will drive innovation and who you will have to please beyond your own uh, your own business. So that uh, those are some lessons from the inside uh, on the on the part of the startup. I think the startups uh, have a lot of opportunity around the innovation. But there's a wariness about how to deal with strategics, whether it is whether to take investment from strategics or not, and how to partner with strategics. The general feeling is that strategics move slowly. They uh, they uh, are difficult to deal with. You're still dealing with people who have a not invented here mentality, and that's the view of the of the startup of the early stage business, and so. The way many have adapted to this is through um, proof, you know, proof or, or pilots, and by uh, doing pilots, they've then tried to separate a, a and match up groups from both organizations who want to do something that's a discrete project and move quickly on it and prove that this could be uh, game changing. That approach generally works. But I think uh, one of the, the, the things that uh, I would say is that obviously not all companies are created equally. And you know that some companies are just much better at, uh, at embracing innovation, uh, working with uh, strategic uh, partners and, and or early stage companies. And so I would say that uh, part of the, uh, and, and you know this from your own experience because you have a great network, uh, it's matching up those companies with the the right company to go to market with. Uh, and then it's a matter of the cultural fit. It's a matter of the leadership. It's a matter of defining the, the mission uh, clearly, uh, building trust, and then it's all about execution. Absolutely. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, during Joe Biden's presidential campaign, you served as the co-chair of the infrastructure subcommittee. And the recommendations uh, the committee provided are now the basis for the infrastructure plan making its rounds on Capitol Hill. Can you tell us more about it and what drove kind of the priorities that you set out? Well, uh, I uh, was really uh, lucky to to work with some incredible people. They, the folks who, who agreed to work on this uh, subcommittee infrastructure policy subcommittee on stimulus. Uh, were the best and the brightest uh, from around the country who really wanted to uh, uh, see that uh, we could take this opportunity to develop policies which would accelerate uh, this absolutely necessary change. Uh, and the president uh, or president-elect at that time or a candidate at that time uh, had a broad vision in terms of building back better uh, for America, and that, uh, and because of the pandemic, there were uh, two, or there were several overriding goals, uh, but a couple of them were one uh, to uh, invest in infrastructure that would create jobs, 
and would uh, address uh, long deferred investment in a number of key uh, areas, uh, all the way from the sort of traditional roads, highways, bridges, tunnels, uh, to broadband, to uh, utilities, to clean water, and other areas, and to do the sort of blocking and tackling around uh, investment in infrastructure. The second thing, besides creating jobs and addressing that deferred maintenance or deferred investment, was to address climate change uh, and to look for a very fast and important investment around electrification uh, to get us back in the game. And this is something the president now has, uh, has really made a strong case. It's not just about now putting people back to work. It's not just about climate change. It's about competitiveness. There's a race to develop and innovate uh, around. You can see it and you live it every day around the investment in electrification and a host of related activities, whether it's around energy and energy generation to battery and battery technology to uh, vehicle manufacture. Uh, but the idea that we would uh, have this overriding uh, issue around uh, climate change and innovation and competitiveness uh, also uh, helped to shape the policy recommendations. And then there's equity uh, and trying to see that, you know, often people who, who, uh, who are the poorest are living in the, in the dirtiest uh, areas with the uh, least access to to uh, broadband or at least uh, or access to clean water or other things. So we tried to to work within that uh, construct uh, to come up with a, uh, a list of recommendations where we felt uh, it would address some of those overriding issues. Now, what, what were, um, maybe you can give us a little bit more specifics. I think you said there were 10 policy recommendations. What were they? Well, some of them uh, uh, you've heard uh, publicly uh, around um, 500,000 charging stations uh, to help uh, build out the electric highway of the future so that uh, we can have adequate and help stimulate more, even more uh, private investment uh, uh, in the way of charging so people uh, don't have range anxiety and will invest further in uh, electric vehicles. Uh, looking to extend the tax credit for um, uh, for electric vehicles, uh, you know, we had this $7,500 uh, federal tax credit, which really helped promote adoption of the uh, the Tesla vehicles. Now we have a, a number of manufacturers who are coming to market with electric vehicles. Uh, we had one that I, I that brings a smile to my face because after the financial crisis, there was the cash for clunkers program which was remarkably successful at and oversubscribed, really, in terms of uh, under President Obama, getting people to uh, trade in their old uh, fuel-inefficient cars, gas guzzlers, uh, and buy newer vehicles. It helped bring back the auto industry, the manufacturers, uh, who had suffered uh, greatly, including the bankruptcy of GM, uh, and it helped uh, get rid of those uh, other vehicles. And something you may not remember, but when those vehicles were taken off the road, uh, they there was a requirement that there was a, a chemical compound that was put in the engine block 
so that those vehicles just weren't shipped off to some third world country and then reused and, and harming the climate. The body parts could be reused, but the engines were not. So we uh, came up with a updated version of Cash for Clunkers called Cash for Flunkers. And this was to take large vehicles, buses, and other really uh, big polluting uh, vehicles uh, and get them off the road with uh, faster accelerated uh, uh, depreciation or accelerated and financing available for replacement of those vehicles and, um, and uh, a Buy America provision for those vehicles to be manufactured here in the States and, uh, and create the jobs that we spoke about uh, earlier. On the grid, uh, one of the big challenges is that there's lots of uh, now, you know, um, solar is really equivalent as a cost with uh, and even maybe more favorable than traditional energy production in this country. The challenge is that much of the uh, energy generation for solar or wind is often uh, not where the demand is. And so we realized that there needs to be investment in transmission lines to bring the power to where the demand is. And so that was another policy uh, recommendation. And then we worked on things like free fares for, uh, for uh, bus riders uh, to help stimulate the use of these public transit services, which had been harmed so much during COVID, and at the same time create equity for people whose uh, often is the case the second largest expense, uh, household expense, is transportation uh, after the home itself. So this is a way of getting people back on the bus, uh, riding it, promoting uh, the use of these services uh, with free fares. And you start to see some adoption around that uh, in some uh, some states, some cities that are, are promoting that. So that's... Uh, those are some of the uh, some of the areas that uh, we're focused on. One other thing that we are very interested in is supply chain uh, around rare earth minerals and thinking about uh, you know not being dependent on countries like China to import a lot of our uh, rare earth minerals to uh, produce uh, any number of things. And so we we have great production and production capacity here in this country. We're investing more. But we also have to solve the supply chain issues, especially around areas like that. Yeah, it's incredible. We found uh, through our research and the report we published, uh, now second one that I published on the uh, mobility sector, is that the biggest driver in electrification and probably future autonomy is uh, basically government stimulation, uh, government stimulus and government regulations. And these are the big um, uh big drivers of all of this uh, despite uh, nice shiny cars it's still pushing uh, th those are the two factors that drive the most um, another thing that I saw in this in this infrastructure plan is kind of a push to um, to uni unionize the companies and provide stimulus uh, or, or credits really for those companies that are good corporate citizens and uh, allow um, allow their 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 teams to unionize and, and have strong jobs and, and really kind of uh, bring all of that back, kind of the economic damage that uh, the country's gone through in the last uh, couple of decades of things uh, unspooling. Un 
When companies start to catch fire and blitzscale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drake Star Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. Any, any other uh, any other things that we should uh, be excited about that we haven't heard about that you want to break news on on the infrastructure plan or, or something that you think is particularly important that everybody should pay attention to in the coming months here? Well, I would say, uh, you know, where I live, which is close to Washington, D.C., this is an area that is uh, highly polarized and uh, and everyone follows that and and picks which side they're on. But in fact... I think there is a realization now, I, I think we have to focus on the fact that uh, there's a strong consensus and, uh, and belief that uh, there should be investment infrastructure. Uh, I think with regard to climate change, what's interesting is that maybe politically, some people don't like to acknowledge it or to think about it, but actually, if you're a very conservative politician in Georgia, on the coastal Georgia, or South Carolina, uh, or uh, or if now you're dealing with a drought in Arizona or Nevada, uh, you're starting to think about, hey, I, we need solutions to to protect the uh, the coasts. We need uh, solutions to get water. We need so they don't like to these uh, some of these politicians don't like to talk about climate change, but they are definitely thinking about the impact uh, and the need to invest. Uh, otherwise, uh, much of this land and uh, and the way we live isn't going to work uh, as we know it. So I'm optimistic that we will see uh, the, the investment required to start to really make a difference. Uh, I'm optimistic that a lot of the technology and the private capital, the flow of private capital, continues to uh, be uh, astounding. Uh, and uh, I think that the, the sense is that uh, we are well beyond the tipping point and we will see uh, rapid adoption of these technologies that come out that will make it a, a better user experience and, and a better world. Mark, I want to thank you for that. I, I'd like to close with one uh, last question, and I, and I really appreciate the optimism that's, uh, that's refreshing to hear, especially coming out of the Washington corridor um, and, and talking about the topics we're talking about. Now, um, you, you've, you've built a fantastic career by all measures, and uh, I'm sure you've learned lots of lessons along the way. Knowing what you know now, what career advice would you have given your 20-something-year-old self just starting out? You know, I, I think one of the most important things to be successful is an intellectual curiosity. 
And I think that's important at every stage of your career that uh, you have to be curious about how things work, why they work, where are the problems and what problems need to be solved. Uh, And then there's no substitute for uh, rolling up your sleeves and sort of getting into it. And uh, one of the great things about our country and our culture in in this country is that there's no shame in failure. So if you give it your best shot, you try hard, you're not going to be an outcast if it doesn't work and you have to try something else. But at the same time, uh, I think perseverance perseverance is important. Uh, sadly, uh, some of the uh, the young folks today dabble at things and don't don't follow through enough to see whether it will really work or whether it will fail. But generally, uh, we see the, the the positive thing is that the, that I think the the folks who are just starting out uh, have a real desire. Uh, to to really improve the world and to make things better. And so they're gravitating uh, to businesses that uh, in my day, when I was starting out, were not at all glamorous. When I, you talked about my history, I got into the taxi business in the beginning, and that was the least possible, gla- uh, the worst possible business you could get into, or the least glamorous business you could get into at the time. Uh, it was way before Uber, and then Uber made it uh, interesting uh, to think about this kind of business. And so there are lots of uh, Lots of interesting opportunities now. And the, the other thing I, I would say is thanks to you, uh, Vitaly, because uh, when you educate and provide this kind of exposure and, and, uh, and share it with folks and they are interested in listening and learning, uh, I think that opens up the world for them. This was our conversation with Mark Joseph, CEO of Mobitus and one of the architects of President Biden's infrastructure plan. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. See you on the next one. And in the meantime, you can always find me at golem.net.